The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, January 24th, the Masculine Mystique Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia in the New York studios. And I say that as if I'm in a studio. I'm actually in my house with a recording mic in case I sound different, guys. Just letting you know that. But in the professional New York studios, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And also Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, I'm feeling very professional with that introduction. <laughs> yes, you guys are audio professors. Mm-hmm. I am just in my pajamas. No, I'm actually dressed, but um, <laughs> but recording myself because I'm an audio professional of a different kind. <laughs> anyway, we only have one announcement today, which is that the Sydney show, The Waves is having a show in Sydney, that is Sydney, Australia, on March 10th, is looking for a guest. So if any of you have ideas for who our guest should be, so far we've gotten female wiggle as one of the options. Uh, <laughs> send us ideas on Twitter at June Thomas at Noreen Malone or email us at thewaves@slate.com. Tell us who you think would be our person. Perfect Sydney guest. All right, let's wiggle on in to our <laughs> topics. First, the new APA guidelines, which edge close to defining masculinity as a mental health problem. That's only a slight exaggeration. Second, the new feminist Gillette ad. Is it a real breakthrough or just more woke branding? And finally, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris throw their hats into the ring. And we are going to discuss what lines they're taking and how they are positioning themselves. And then, June, do you want to say what we're discussing in our Slate Plus segment? And I'm not saying – I'm not choosing you because you're gay. (laughs) I'm just throwing that to you randomly. (laughs) Roger. Noted. Noted. This week in our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking if it is sexist that Mary Oliver, who just died last week, if her poetry was always treated with something that might be described as disdain by the sort of poetry establishment, by big poetry. Was Mary Oliver's reception by big poetry sexist? And if you want to hear that segment and to support Slate's journalism, you can have a two-week free trial of Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, so the American Psychological Association just passed a new set of guidelines for psychological practice for men and boys. And just for the record, they have these for girls and women as well. The guidelines talk about something called masculinist ideology as being bad for men's health, both physical and psychological health. The idea is the more closely you ascribe to this ideology, masculinist ideology, the worse off you are. So if a psychologist is right to talk to you about it and take it on as a kind of challenge and problem in your life. All right, so June, why don't we start off by just listing some of the bad things that they ascribe to masculinist ideology? Like what happens to you if you're too masculinist minded. (laughs) Yeah, I was really struck by the descriptions that the APA offered of the kind of sort of negative masculinity that they were describing, because 
it's so very stereotypical and so obviously very, very bad. So some of the things, we start with things like suppressing emotion, uh, rejecting self-care, doing self-destructive things, things like drinking excessively or doing drugs, stoicism, masking distress, basically kind of maintaining the appearance of a badass. They also mention very stereotypical things like violence or homophobia, uh, aggression. Um, You know, things that I don't think anybody would see as anything but things that are really not good for a person. Right. There was also like eat fewer vegetables on the list, you know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like feeling that you don't have to eat vegetables. Those are girly things, Um, which I think also falls under that sort of notion of rejecting self-care. And Noreen, were you convinced that these were things that should be ascribed to masculinist ideology? Like, did you feel like they were stretching it? Or this is a fair definition of what it means to, it's not what it means to be a man. It's actually hard to talk about this because it's a very long document. It's like what it means to ascribe to the ideology of masculinity, which is different. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. And a lot of the conversation around this didn't make that distinction, right? Commentators on both the left and the right took this and and like took the headline that this was saying being a man is a psychological like a harmful psychological condition which isn't actually what this is saying this is saying like to adhere to these i think pretty strictly american idea or western idea of what it is to be a man can like the ways that it interacts with the modern world can be harmful I think that's sort of an underlying theme here is that the world has changed mm-hmm. and that these masculinist ideas have not updated themselves. And that's where you get the friction. And then, of course, you get people chiming in and saying, but testosterone, like you're, you know, you're not allowing men to like connect with their truer selves. And that's actually where I think the argument gets really interesting. Um Can you explain that a little bit? Because I feel the same way you do. Like with women, we talk about a particularly female way of expressing itself and giving that more space in the world. So there is a corollary among men. Like I think where the rubber meets the road is like you take things like vulnerability and intimacy. Is there just a singular definition of vulnerability and intimacy preferred by, say, psychologists, which men don't? do? And is that necessarily unhealthy? Is that what you mean? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I I personally don't necessarily see vulnerability and intimacy as necessarily feminine things, right? And the people who are quibbling with this are saying that, I guess they're saying that they are, you know? And then there's a whole school of thought that actually the repression of masculinity is good for both the functioning of an individual and of society. So there are a bunch of different arguments swirling around that boil down to like stop pathologizing masculinity it's what it's what built the world you know you know it's funny that you you say that because many of the traits that were described as traditional masculinity things like you know not showing emotions being hard um strike me as particularly british emotions like you know it's it's a stiff up a lip uh-huh. essentially you know stereotypically british ways of presenting. And I think there is a similar like, you know, that colonialist view of like, if you're hard enough and tough enough and strong enough, you can overcome the world. We're just a little island, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna rule the world. And uh, which obviously is utter nonsense too. But I, I feel so strongly that those two things are connected. Like it's a way of seeing yourself and projecting yourself to to kind of tell yourself that what you're doing is noble and great when 
sometimes it might be, but not necessarily. Yeah. But the like Steven Pinkers of the world are arguing that there is something in testosterone that makes it harder for men to like be open and adaptive to this modern world and that we are trying to force them down and robbing them of something essential in their nature. I think that's that's the secondary argument that sprung up. Do you guys think there's anything? Well, I just want to point out, though, that the APA then said, well, it doesn't really matter what's causing it. We are psychologists and we're just treating whatever issues are presented. So we're not actually, you know, talking about what are the causes of these problems. We're just trying to figure out how we can help people who are experiencing difficulties or unhappiness to figure them out. So just to put that out there. Yes. I have to say, I find those chemical slash evolutionary biology arguments totally unconvincing. Yes, of course, there is testosterone. There are chemical differences between men and women, but I don't think they necessarily, there's no universe in which you can't pick certain things apart. Like the very first Invisibilia story I ever did about this oil rig where they taught the men to open up and be more vulnerable. And it was a very interesting story. I mean, it was very, it was a very interesting test case, I would say, of this, where they kind of separated the testosterone and the ability to build and build safely and run an oil rig, like that the things that you needed to do that required openness. Like that's just a very unsubtle way of thinking about it. Like men build because they have testosterone. Like men can build and also sort of learn places where certain habits or ways of being are getting in the way. You know, I don't know. I'm so torn about this because I get I think it was Ross Douthat who wrote the column that this is incredibly reductive because there are a million ways that we have defined masculinity, even in America. You know, there's like the cowboy poet. And then there's like there's a lot of man tropes. They're not all the same man trope. But still, I feel like on some big sociological, big, big level, there is a kind of stuckness that we need to push through. Yeah, that that stuckness feels very relevant. And it, you know, because let's talk about where these concepts of traditional masculinity cause problems. And it's around things like, you know, a topic we've talked about in the past of sort of some men being reluctant, to say the least, to like retrain when their sort of traditional blue collar manufacturing job disappears. And there are, for example, jobs in healthcare, but they really can't face becoming nurses or working in some kind of, you know, some level of nursing. And that just feels like, well, I understand that losing your earning power, losing, you know, takes away your status, takes away um, what I have now seen repeatedly referred to as your your marriage value, you know, really gets at your sense of security and sense of self. But if something about the way you perceive masculinity gets in the way of your retraining to get a job that will, you know, keep you fed, then that's just a very clear problem that's not really about psychology. Well, I mean, it is caused by psychology, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's clearly so, you know, destructive. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing is that it's essentially redefining men, which is something we've talked about on this show before, yeah. as kind of victims of a cultural construct. You know, in the same way women have often defined themselves as like, we are kind of oppressed and limited by a cultural constructs around femininity. This is saying, well, so are men. You know, there's a masculine mystique operating now, which in the same way there was a feminine mystique in the 50s and 60s, which limits men to a certain, um, a certain limited 
inherited tropes. Like you can only be like this. You can only be like this. You can't be like this. And those tropes are doing the equivalent of like sticking you at home, making the bed all day, you know, but whatever is like the male equivalent of that. Like that's, that's what's weird about this is that it's, it's very explicitly taking on this idea of masculine victimhood, you know, by gender construct. I love the idea of a masculine mystique. <laughs> and I don't yeah. know if someone's going to write it or if it's going to be a cologne line, but it's <laughs> it's going to be a thing in the next 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I was thinking about it like, you know, no one ever says the phrase woman up in seriousness. It's always like a play on mm-hmm. something. I think just the phrase itself is telling man up comes with just a set of expectations. Like Ross out that is right that it, that, now actually more than ever there are so many models of what masculinity actually is and can be and and the and the you know the ones that we're focusing on when we're talking about masculinist ideals are are the more negative ones but everyone does know what it means when you say man up you know there is just like a set of cultural understandings that we have about that term and and some of them are good right like I'm I'm not against the, the idea of some of these things that we've labeled, but but I don't know that that some of these um, you know, these qualities that I would say are good ones, you know, sort of discipline, self control, emotional maturity. I wouldn't. I don't think that those are necessarily only masculine. I mm-hmm. think that's sort of where it gets a little murky for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess having a, having access to the full quiver of emotions, you mm-hmm. know, like not not saying oh, I'm not doing that because that's girly. Which obviously, I hear myself saying that. Like, I don't think any human has ever actually said that. But, but that notion of being so keyed into specific sets of very hypermasculine, traditional masculine traits, and then rejecting ones that seem contrary to that. Like, the first part of that is fine. The second part is where the problem comes. Yeah, that's super interesting and important. Like, I've I've often actually had the thought, like, I'm glad I'm not a man. It seems so limiting, right? Because you can, there are a lot of different ways to be a woman and um, to be, to be in the world. And there are fewer ways to be a man. And I think that's, yeah, it's, it's just like um, a, a more limited color palette almost if you're thinking of, of the rainbow. So many grays. So many grays. My hope in all this is always that psychology follows sexuality, like in the way that sexuality has become so much more fluid. And you hear this at least on elite campuses, a little tiny bit about men, like just arrangements that men, young, younger men make much younger than me. And like, just there's a more fluidity, there's like breakthrough a little bit in fluidity around male sexuality, like all these researchers, even like, uh, is her name Lisa Diamond, who used to just study female sexuality, like they're starting to see cracks in men sexuality. And so I've always hoped that in the same way that like who and how you have sex is is sliding along a scale for young people, like the same will happen for psychological traits. You know, like they won't, we won't divide so cleanly the traits like vulnerability, intimacy belongs to the feminine and these other things belong to the masculine that you can sort of pick and choose. Like if you happen to be a guy, you can pick and choose from the sort of palette of traditionally feminine traits. And that's fine. You know, well, do you think that the um, APA sort of labeling it as almost a psychological condition gets us closer to that? Or does it sort of set it back a little bit by almost pathologizing these things in a way, codifying it, even as it's trying to remove it from this like strict definition? To me, it just depends on 
how carefully you tiptoe around the defensiveness, because we're not at the moment where it's totally pliant, like we're not there yet, where people are like, okay, um, you know, I'm ready for this. Like the way women were probably ready for it, right? They read The Feminine Mystique and were like, hell yes. Like almost immediately after that book came out, like law schools were flooded. You know, it's like mm-hmm. everybody, the divorce rate spiked. It's like it's like women were clearly just like so hungry to break through at that particular historical moment. I do not think that's true of men. And I read the APA guidelines, like not that we have to like worry about male defensiveness. I'm just talking about like where we are at this moment in history. And I read it with an eye to that. And I was like, oh, there are definitely these passages which are sort of like lectury about, you know, your privilege. And let me explain mm-hmm. to you what the deal is with your privilege. It's just like, walk it slowly. I mean, we'll get to this when we talk to the Gillette ad, because I showed it to a lot of men just to like young men, I just showed it to a lot of men just to gauge their reactions. But I do think that it's like, it just depends on how it's a it's a little because men are, you know, their egos are so tender. And <laughs> yeah, just no, kidding. It's, but it just, <laughs> it's this weird thing where where like, men totally think they're the victim right now but if you label them actually as a victim like they don't like it they get pissed off right exactly they get pissed off damn it they're so annoying um all right well listeners if you have had a chance to read the apa guidelines please send us some of your thoughts do you think they are a good thing and if you are a guy and your therapist started talking to you this way about it let us know how you would feel Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's move on to our second topic, the Gillette ad. In a new ad, Gillette takes the Razor Brand's classic slogan, the best a man can get, and rebrands it for a woke feminist post-MeToo era. The ad is called We Believe, and it lays out an era is over kind of message and points men to a new way of holding each other accountable. So Noreen, can you just give us a sense of some of the images in the ad and how it kind of moves, what its narrative is? Sure. The ad sort of starts with displays of what we would call on the feminist internet toxic masculinity. It's sort of Me Too moments. It's guys sort of doing what you're not supposed to do, doing um, doing doing what the APA would call masculinist acts, um, sort of catcalling. Just plain bullying, right? Bullying, yes. Bullying. Um, There is, I believe, it's a news clip from Me Too that kind of plays. And then the ad moves into a more enlightened phase where it tells you to expect better of men. And then you see the men, you know, you see a dad stopping kids from fighting, stopping them from bullying. You see a, a friend pull his friend back from going after a woman on the street. And then it sort of closes out by showing the faces of young boys, implying that men have to do better so that they can show young boys a different kind of masculinity that that like these are masculine ideals too to you know be kind to each other to not bully to treat women with respect and maybe we can play a clip towards the end there boys will be boys boys will be boys boys will be boys but something finally changed allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment and there will be no going back because we 
we believe in the best in men. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Bro, not cool. Not cool. So then the internet had, I I would say, a divided reaction to this ad. Um, At least on the on the sort of left internet even there was a divide some people were like this is great like this is great that we're showing um you know better versions of what it means to be a man and then there was an immediate uh like kind of marxist critique that was like come on why are we listening to brands like this is so hypocritical brands are still using gender to sell products you know they've like peddled this other version of masculinity for years why are we paying any attention to them well, I think, though, that, I mean, uh, uh, yes, that is definitely an accurate summary of the response. But I think it's possible to experience both feelings. This was very good modeling of better behavior. Accountability is a really great idea. Um, I found it very stirring. Like, there's, they, it's an ad, which is another word for like a short film, a very, very, very short film. Uh, and in its, uh, I thought it, it did what it was set out to do quite well. When the music gets going at the end, like you feel that kind of stirring within, even as you know that this has nothing to do with Gillette, that Gillette is making use of a movement of other people's pain, of something that they've, there's nothing to do with them and their, you know, overseers, their their larger company, uh, Procter & Gamble, nothing to do with them. They're They're using something that is very real for a lot of people and is absolutely not particular to them. It's terrible. At the same time, it's also kind of great. Yeah. No, I, I'm like a little bit tired of the school of cultural criticism. That's just like the only take that everyone has is capitalism is bad. Right. <laughs> like, OK, fine. But we are we are living in this world exactly. and brands are not going anywhere. And if this is the kind of masculine ideal that that the big brands are going to be peddling, I think that's better right like versus the Budweiser ads from the 90s where it was like what up yeah or like dudes in hot tubs you know I prefer this like if they're gonna keep doing gendered marketing which they are gonna keep doing (laughs) it's better that it's relatively enlightened and yeah is it kind of a cynical ploy to you know steal the woke moment to get us talking about Gillette right now on a feminist podcast but like what (laughs) this podcast is sponsored by (laughs) Harry's it's not I hope right (laughs) um but like I don't know whatever I'll take it Hannah you said you showed this ad to lots of men what was their response (laughs) not my response I thought it was perfect like I got nothing cynical to say about it I actually do think that men's brands owe us something like you know of course it's cynical and you can only get away with it once like now all the brands are going to start doing that and whatever you know so it's not going to work anymore but like you get one shot at this like the first one to to, like the dove ads you know before everyone turns on you you only get one shot so this is their one shot and i thought it was so well done and um and they owe us frankly it's been just (laughs) like you know how many years of the best a man can get was like just you know a shave just so and like a woman giving him a kiss so so I got no, 
I got no problem with it. I didn't think they were working too hard. Like, do I, I almost kind of prefer it to like, you know, we have a new organic razor that's me, you know, that, that style of bullshit appeal. Like, I feel like this is like a mea culpa. And now, you know, beer ads can, can come next <laughs> um, and do good versions of this. So I'm fine with it. I showed it to some men in my life. <laughs> and I would say <laughs> the young men were defensive. You know, huh. they were much more cynical about it than I was. They were like, they just like read right through it as lecturing in the same way sometimes, you know, they say like, um, you know how they say about sex ed, uh. that the only good porn ed that works is when you tell young kids that porn is, it's rigged and it's manufactured and the these women are not having fun and this is acting, they're trying to get one over on you. So I think given that young boys and men are always attuned to the like, the man is trying to get one over on me, that was generally their reaction. They were like, yeah, yeah. Like it's so perfect and it's so ridiculously like, like just kind of posed and you know racially balanced and um that they just found it like too much too inauthentic and irritating which is how i feel about the women's version of this like i hate the dove ads and i've hated the dove ads from pretty much the beginning and so now i'm trying to figure out why i'm like why am i on board for this but anything that that smacks of like empowerment exploitation when selling me gendered products as a woman i get so angry about but for men i'm like yeah yeah that's that's a powerful message for the culture you know <laughs> like what's happening there <laughs> Do you think it's just defensiveness? Like they're trying to tell you how to be a woman or what to think about your body or they're trying to win you over and you're like, but I'm not going to take the next act and go buy Dove soap like that'll just make me feel like a dupe or an idiot. Is that the problem? Yeah, it's yeah, I think that's what it is. It's like both telling me that I'm, you know, an empowered woman who's more than the sum of my body parts. And also, here's how to groom yourself just perfectly so the world likes you, right? And there's your body part. Right. right. And (laughs) and is the same thing as, you know, like, okay, let's think through what's, what is Gillette selling? It's selling razors. You have to be a clean shaven man. I I don't know. It's like, it's just a little bit, I feel like a razor for a man is just a little more practical in their lives, right? It's not selling you six pack abs while telling you you need to be a better person. I don't know. There's, but there's, it's also inconsequential, like it's just yeah. a razor, you know. So the yeah. idea that you, as a man, should be moved by a razor company is probably like, please, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. It, I remember when we first started Outward, which I guess, which is which Slate's LGBTQ blog vertical, whatever the term is these days. Um, we did so many posts that were about, look at this ad that actually has a gay couple on it. How great. And and it did feel great. And it like there was it it elicited a feeling of like, oh, we're we're being recognized, we're being accepted, we're being used to sell products. It's the ultimate American recognition. And there is a like there's something something it does feel powerful when even as cynical and knowing like even when you know what's going on, it's still powerful. Um, so yeah, I guess that's is kind of what we're all saying. Like, well, the cynicism is part of what makes it powerful. Because if you're like, okay, the like soulless advertising community thinks that this is the way to Americans' hearts, that's great. Yeah, like if, they're right. You know, that's great for for the LGBTQ movement or for this like movement to sort of you know expand the definition of manhood. That's like a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like even those assholes think so. Right? <laughs> they're just trying to make and money. Can I- can I just say also like my earnest mission because I'm happy for help 
from our listeners with this. This is just like the God's honest truth. I have suddenly, I have suddenly like woken up to the fact that I am raising two white men to be. And there's just like a whole set of like mm-hmm. some serious complicated issues that they're going to be facing on whatever liberal college campus they go to. Like, I'm not saying it's not easy to be a white man, but it is like, it's hard in a different way that like your dad can't quite prepare you for, mm-hmm. you know, like how to express yourself and how you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to set your face and when you can speak and you can't speak and how people are going to think of you as like a privileged white boy. And I think about that a lot because we hang around with a lot of girls and there's a lot of like casual like you know ugh white you know like everybody says that all the time and so I just wonder like what to tell them so I'm just trying to start that conversation by like making them watch the videos and also making them watch that MAGA boy march in Washington video which I hope we'll talk about a little bit too and just like get them like what is the conversation about being a privileged white boy and what are people saying to you and about you and how are people portraying you and what are you supposed to how are you supposed to be in that space so Hannah speaking of that viral video of the MAGA Covington high school boys what was your reaction as the mom of high school boys that that video has been um so just to recap for people who haven't seen it it's from MLK weekend, these high school boys all wearing red Make America Great, many of them wearing red Make America Great gear, including the hats, are in Washington for the March for Life. And they get into a shouting match with Black Hebrew Israelites. And then Nathan Phillips, who is a Native American activist who was very prominent in the pipeline protests, comes over and begins sort of uh, chanting and they start to mock him um, with like tomahawk chops and just like this grin. And the image that pinged around the internet was these, you know, fratty teenage boys in MAGA hats mocking a Native American. And Then some people said, oh, the whole picture is more complicated if you look at the whole video. And it became this touchstone for what you believed about, like, high school boys, essentially. Mm -hmm. Can they be these, like, forces of malevolence in the world? Or are they, just by definition of their age and the, the sort of group mentality of it, should we cut them a little slack? So what was your what was your reaction as someone who... Oh, God, it kills me, this whole thing. It's like, I mean, just like, just a visceral reaction to that guy's douchey face. Like, you know, this is a kid, I understand he's probably like, 15 or 14 but his smug douche like the a lot of it is just textual analysis mm-hmm. it's like what we mm-hmm. say with trump it's just literally like where do you cut the video where do you freeze frame and what do you bring in your own head to that freeze frame as you are looking at it you know that's also what this story is about and so the freeze frame that went around the internet the most is like shot from behind Nathan Phillips had. So you're behind the Native Americans. You're in his point of view, looking at the white guy, the kid who could not have a more douchey, patronizing, disrespectful look on his face. Like, I just want to smack him from my maternal place and be like, how dare you show that face to any grown up? You know, like my mother's side is like, really? Like, you should be suspended forever, forever (laughs) showing that face to any grown up. It's so disrespectful. And he's like right up in the guy's face. And then all the guy, all his dudes around him and they're wearing these hats and looking at him and they're laughing. But then it's like, 
I don't know. I mean, like, they're at a parade. They've just had this whole other run in. This guy came in a sense to defend them. I don't know. You know, um, it's like hard to blame him, but it's easier to blame. I think somebody was it Ruth Graham made the distinction between like the storm and the weather. Like you yeah. can analyze the storm and exactly what happened to death. Like who started and where did the boys come in and, you know, what happened? And, and also like the fact that the teenager's family hired a PR firm to spin the facts so that it looked better for him. And then you just like zoom out to the weather. Like how did these young boys get in this spot and find it acceptable to behave this way? Like that I'm not that ambivalent about. Like something is wrong. Yeah. yeah. And you when you watch the longer videos, Part of what you realize is wrong is just like the fact of teenage boys, like they there's so much energy that they have and they don't know what to do with it. And so as it's this group herd mentality, you see that all over in some of the mm-hmm. most horrifying things you read about teenage boys, like, you know, hazing or horrible sort of excesses, just general. excesses, yeah. even even like some of these awful gang rape situations. It's just this herd mentality that takes over and you see them in their hats and you think they don't know a thing about politics. Like maybe their parents are Republicans and probably these boys like have picked up some like bad views in the past two years during the Donald Trump era, but they're wearing those hats because it's like the cool thing to do. And they're chanting because they don't know what else to do. And there's like this, like if we all lock arms and do it together, it's like, it's this insane group think mixed with but teenage hormonal energy and yet there they are at the march for life an anti-abortion march like that, and someone's taking them there yeah and yeah i'm not excusing no them. no no it's no, no. Like, it's, it's just so complicated and yeah. i see this all the time like I but see, see i don't think that it's an argument against it i think that your teenage years are where you see cultural conditioning at its most pure you know it's just like in the toddler years when people see like gender conditioning at its most pure like i only play with dolls i only play with cars that's true of teenage years and cultural conditioning you don't know any better you don't have any filters you haven't like figured it out for yourself all you know how to do and all you care about is to like play to the norm play to the norm but it's we create the norm like mm-hmm. if the norm were different you'd be playing to a different norm in your teenage years like it's not like oh teenagers boys will be boys it's like ah there's the canvas of what you created america laid out on your teenagers like why does it what do you think teenage boys like absolutely like their their testosterone directs them to gang rape or whatever or to be racist or to be disrespectful not exactly not if the culture were different totally yeah and how do like i wonder this sometimes i see like white men who are doing well in their lives and want to give their kids their white sons like the best experience to be good dads to you know to give their kids chances to do things and to you know to have opportunities and i see these kids often being kind of douchey like just being so full of themselves and i you know in the back of my mind i want to say you know you need to experience some hardship you need to like have some humility you have to realize that if you go out in the world like this it's going to be awful for you. It's going to be awful for the people that you that you interact with. At the same time, isn't that the best lesson in terms of their like their security, their future? Isn't it the best lesson to be as big as they can be, as strong as they can be, as as like as douchey as they can be? And I kind of hear myself thinking, I, I want to you know talk to that parent, and I think first of all, it's none of my business, but also secondly, like really, do I really want to say you want your kid to have a worse experience so that they experience a little bit of you know conflict and and some some pushback so that they understand what it's like to not be always on top? Like, how do you convey that to kids and still give them a good 
childhood. I, I'm very relieved that I don't have kids and specifically sons uh, because I, that's a really big challenge, I think. But taking the Gillette ad and like the Ross yeah. column, like couldn't yeah. you read in that situation, even by some definitions of traditional masculinity, couldn't you see a different mode of behavior being seen as incredibly manly in the traditional way and yet not that? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you can just yeah. have a guy, like if one of them, if one them who is slightly older had stood in and sort of pushed the guy back a little bit and kind of resolved it in a different way, like would that have been like a sissy thing to do? Like in the old no. sense of sissy? No, it yeah, wouldn't yeah, have, yeah. you know? No, 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 exactly. What's, what's, semi-ironic is that Nathan Phillips was actually modeling the kind of masculinity that we're all talking about as an ideal, right? He was trying to actually kind of ease tensions between these boys and uh, the the group that was shouting at them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I don't want to excuse these boys at all. And actually, I think that they're just going to get so calcified in their anger, like, because they have become such a sensation on the internet, they're, they're going to, like, get stuck in this victim mindset and their parents are going to be on their side and it's just going to be horrible. But I, when you guys were talking about how, you know, the teenagers reflect what the culture, they reflect the culture, right? Like, when I was a teenager which was, you know, the early aughts, like late 90s, early aughts. My high school, which was a progressive, liberal public school, at sports events, when we played all boys schools, we would shout, frankly, like gay slurs. Hmm. And that most, I think the vast majority of the kids I went to high school with did not hold those views about uh, negative views about gay people, nor did their parents. And I think we would all be humiliated now if we saw videos of, you know, our like... Our shame, maybe? Yeah, yeah, shame, shame, absolutely. And when we played, you know, all-girls schools, we would say things about how they were hoes. Like, it was, I mean, it's it's like totally immature, and I don't even think people really liked doing it, but everyone else was doing it. And you do grow out of it, hopefully. Most people do, right? So I do have that a little bit in the back of my head that, like, probably some of those boys, like, didn't know what to do. They were kind of, like, going along and everyone else is chanting. So I'm going to chant, too, you know? Yeah. But isn't it just now the speed at which things happen? So nobody chants that stuff anymore. Cultural standards change. I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark with my son a couple weekends ago, and I was like, holy shit, how sexist and racist is this movie? And how much I didn't notice when I was watching it. And I was very glad that the standards had changed. We don't like do or cast or show certain things in the way that we used to. And now it's just going to happen faster. Like, it doesn't bother me that this one kid or this one school is experiencing shame, so that schools afterwards and boys afterwards will be more careful when they go to a protest or a pro-life protest or whatever. Um, In the same way those sorority girls who were like you know singing the n-word and like which sorority girls probably said a lot and now it's like well we're not maybe going to do that because somebody might have a camera like is that the worst thing isn't that how standards change or is your point that maybe the point is because they change so quickly and by force and by video these days people don't have time to incorporate them and so you get a much bigger residue of resentment I mean, that's also possible. Yeah, I think both those things are true. I also think that, like, values are not necessarily universal, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, there probably are communities where people are chanting the kinds of things that I would now be ashamed to have 
you know, done that where it's just not a big deal. Um, But I, to your broader point, yes, of course. Like, if this is like, I am not defending these boys. <laughs> I just, I just am sort of thinking about, you know, uh, about the teenage mentality. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Like, it's a protest. Like, when you say people don't enjoy it, I think people do enjoy it. Like, there's just an energy that flows through you when you're standing at a protest, and it's inherently oppositional. And we've all been at protests, and, like, you know what that energy is like. Like, Mm -hmm. you get a kind of, like, aggression that you don't have just kind of walking down the street, you know? And so you can see how it all happened. And then when you cut it up into a video, it looks like hell. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts to share about this white teenager who found himself in the spotlight this way and any different ways of looking at him, please let us know. You can tweet at us at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen, or write us at thewavesatslate.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, enough about men. Enough about the men. We've talked so much about the men. It's time to talk about the women. Kamala Harris. Kirsten Gillibrand both announced in recent days that they're forming exploratory committees. I love that term. I love Washington, (laughs) D.C. language. Exploratory (laughs) committees. I'm just going to explore myself. (laughs) Hey, can I just jump in? Tulsi Gabbard also jumped in, right? Officially? Is that true? Yeah, 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 officially. Yeah. Okay. I I saw her on that list. There was this sort of big list of faces, but it was hard for me to tell like who had said yes, yes, and who had mumbled yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay, great. So then then that's also Elizabeth Warren. So um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't be more happy. Uh, They all jumped in with slightly, slightly, slightly different messages, although there were some similarities. But all of this is just making my day because, oh, my God, there's actually more than one way to run as a woman for office. It isn't just one woman. This is a really exciting moment. Why don't we start with Kirsten Gillibrand's line? June, like, what was she pushing forward? She's, to me, the most straightforward. Like, she runs on women's issues. She has a history of combating Mm -hmm. sexual harassment in Mm -hmm. the military among her colleagues. She's distanced herself from Hillary because of Bill. I feel like she is running the most consistently, openly, you know, feminist ally kind of line. Yeah, she mentioned her work that you just described, fighting sexual assault and harassment in those venues. And another explicit bit of positioning that she did was to refer to herself repeatedly as a young mom. You know, she has two small children and she kind of repeated that she's fighting uh, you know, as a young mom for her kid and her kids and everybody else's kids. And and that was, you know, the the number of times she made that specific call out made it clear that that is, you know, that's her, it's not her slogan exactly, but it's, you know, that's the thing that she's trying to associate herself with. And not to be mean, but she's 52 and she's the mom of young kids, but I wouldn't call that necessarily. Like when I hear young mom, I think, I don't know, 25 to 35 like right. it's, what are you like on the bachelor like that was the line <laughs> on the bachelor it was like about the two old ladies on the bachelor and how hard it was for them That's oh really funny i mean come on she's she's like i know i'm kidding she's positioning I know, I know. herself but actually like one thing that she's done that i think is interesting is she has 
when she's been hit with the Al Franken question, right, which is people in the Democratic Party are angry at her for like they see her as having taken down Al Franken. Never mind that Al Franken sort of took himself down by <laughs> like, you know, sexually harassing eight women. So she she was asked a question about that. Why had she done this? And she said, well, you know, my boys asked me about this and I wanted to show them like what it actually means. To, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I wanted to show them what it means to be a good man. So actually, she's sort of using the fact of being the mother of boys in a smart way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Can I ask you guys a question about this mom thing? Because I have such a unreasonable resistance to it. When someone says, I'm a mom, like I'm a mom of two boys and repeats that, what are they trying to transmit? Like relatability or competence? Like moms are uber competent? Or like what is, why is it that you would, I mean, I know that men say like, I have a fine family, although they don't often say I'm a dad. They say like, I'm a family man. Like there it's supposed to transmit normalcy and stability. <laughs> you know, like I'm just the norm. Like I did the thing that dudes are doing, are supposed to do and I'm normal or whatever. But for women, there's an extra. It's not just like I'm competent, like I'm female and I I did the female thing. It's supposed to transmit some other thing. What do you read from it? Like when you hear I'm a mom. I think it's like saying I am bought into something, right? Like I have skin in this game too. I make these decisions with my children's welfare in mind. And I, so I understand that it's like the things that you are facing, the decisions you, you know, the, the conditions you need to raise your kids. I think it's kind of saying that it's like I have something in common with you. There are some universal truths of being, let's say, the primary caregiver, which is, I think, also what they're saying when they're saying I'm mm-hmm. a mom, whether or not that's true, actually, in Kirsten Gillibrand's life or not. I don't actually know. But I think that's what they're trying to say. Yeah, I think it's it's all of those things. I think too, you know, just to be slightly cynical about it, she also, you know, is is choosing that to, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on her being, you know, the senator from Wall Street and having these, you know, very close ties to Wall Street and she is, you know, very explicitly positioning herself. No, I'm really a woman of the people. I'm relatable. I'm just like you. I've got kids. I'm worried about my kids. And I think too, there's also like preemptively kind of fighting back against the sexism of like people potentially at some point, I doubt they would actually say it explicitly, but hinting at like, come on, she's the mom of two little kids. She's really okay. Like, you know, being the president, which, you know, again, never heard anybody say that about a male politician uh, who had two relatively young kids fighting for office. But I think I suspect people would hint it about a female candidate. And I think it is something with like normalcy. Like people don't think you're normal unless you're an adult woman with children, you know, like that was actually something that I think was sort of dogging Kamala Harris for a little while. She, I believe, does not have children of her own. She's a stepmother now, but she only got married a few years ago. And it was sort of one of these things where people were like, I don't know, she's never been married, doesn't have kids. Like, what's the deal there? You know, it's like, it's this weird kind of thing where you're not sort of like a stable, bought into the system adult unless you have had children. Well, that was really helpful. I'm glad I asked you guys that question because that really softened my resistance. Like that it's not like I'm a mom, I can take care of business. But I like this idea that it's skin in the game. Like it allows you to see her as a person who not theoretically, but genuinely cares about the future of the nation because she has things at stake. And then also to scramble, like if we can think of the presidency as and jobs in general as being occupied by a whole self of a human and not just like a, a kind of robot of a human that has to leave everything else aside, that would be a step forward. 
Okay, I'll take the mom line then. I'm okay with it. I mean, if she does it like every second, it will irritate yes. me. But I also wonder if she is trying still to clarify what is different about her from Hillary Clinton, right? Because they are all a little bit running in the shadow of Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton was obviously a mom, but her daughter was an adult by the time she was running. And she never sort of put herself on the national stage as a necessarily maternal figure, right? Um, you know, the famous baking cookies line kind of thing. Although she really got into mentioning her grandmotherness in her presidential run. Yes. Because that was relatively new at that time. Which also seemed pretty genuine to yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is, like, people just think Kirsten Gillibrand is like a mini Hillary in some ways. Uh-huh. So and this I human, think, this makes her into a human. Kind yes. Of. Yes. A regular human. Well, that would be cool. I mean, it may be that then that opens the door for men not to be like, I'm a family man, which is always just patronizing and distancing from the actual work of parenting, but a dad in some particular way. Like, that would be okay if that became universal and men had specific relationships with their children or specific ideas about being a father or like that was allowed into the public sphere as a part of their identity in some particular way. You know? Yeah, the the phrase "I'm a family man" just to me screams like I'm a cheater. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? It's so unspecific and like makes you think it's a big lie. <laughs> right. Anyway. It's like I have family widget. Here's wife, meet wife widget, meet children widget. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Kamala Harris, let's talk about her a bit. She is a slightly different animal, slightly different set of concerns. Uh, The debate that ensued after she announced actually had to do with her toughness on crime, particularly. And I actually wondered if that was all staged or going to work in her advantage. Kamala Harris was a prosecutor before she became a senator. And uh, the debate on the left is whether she was a gentle prosecutor, which by all accounts, it sounds like on many, many, many fronts, she was not. But I thought that would actually kind of work in her favor. Like, like she could, if she wanted to ease in after the primary into a tough on crime position. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a kind of a, a political challenge in the, you know, in that usual way of, you got to win over your base in the primaries, you know, you've got to you got to attract your party support in the primaries, but then you got to tack to the middle, as you just said, Anna, and have a more have a broader appeal in the general election. It seems kind of practical that way. At the same time, that takes away the whole like, well, so wait, what are her views when it comes to criminal justice? She was apparently a very, you know, hard ass of a DA, uh, a very, you know, very strict and unforgiving, as you say, uh, attorney general in California was, you know, really divided people was not liked. And at the same time, yeah, that's like this is sort of a semi-cynical, like maybe that's what we need. And I don't know, like, do we ever know what politicians, okay, now as, you know, I remember as a kid watching impersonators, impersonators were big in Britain when I was a kid. And then one famous one, when he'd finished like impersonating all these people, he would say, and this is me. And he would like, okay, that, and then it was just like his voice. And I like politicians never say that. They never say, okay, this is me. That other stuff was just cynical to win election. This is what I really think. Like, because they want you to believe that at every single moment. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know when to trust her at the same time. Like that, there was a video that she did. She released a video, I guess, on Twitter that was like her giving her, you know, her top five jams or something, her favorite music. And she seemed so real. Again, that's not, it's a, it's a manufactured reality, but she was laughing and her laugh was the greatest politician's laugh ever. And 
they're like, I don't know if moments like that actually count more than, you know, my stated position on criminal justice reform is, which probably is on the whole more important than how genuine her laugh seems. But somehow the but, the, but okay. of, the viscerality to- of the laugh cuts through more. But maybe stick to the laugh for a minute. Maybe what the women do, one thing they do, there's many things that they can accomplish to change up American politics. But one thing like AOC does is just change the understandings of charisma and authenticity. I'm not saying they're more authentic. They're Mm -hmm. just like differently inauthentically authentic and charismatic (laughs) than the men are inauthentically authentic and charismatic. Like you just add to the number of ways that a politician can kind of take fire in the country and, and like sort of, and and that's good. Like ways that are easier for women to slide into or that are just more varied. And that would be good and interesting. Let's not forget Beto uh, live streaming his uh, dental cleaning. Yeah, that was so sexy. Exactly. (laughs) To rest on Beto for a minute, he's doing, he's not just live streaming his dental cleaning or like, he's he's on this big road trip to like find the soul of America and himself. And uh, imagine, if you will, the thought experiment of one of these women with children going on a 10 day solo road trip and leaving her kids at home and just like blogging about it. Like there's this, there, I've <laughs> I've been reading the uh, the updates, and there's this one moment where he's like, "Called my wife. We didn't really connect because the kids were in the car, and she said maybe I should go to a bar and try to talk to some people." And I was like, "Oh wow, <laughs> that does not sound like this like road trip to find America is going over too well with your wife, who's like stuck in a car with her <laughs> screaming children." So, <laughs> so just 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 think of the just you know, a note, yeah, just a note on Beto from me, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I don't know how well it would go over if Kirsten Gillibrand decided to find herself. (laughs) Sorry, boys. I'm leaving to go find myself now. Um, (laughs) Did anything else strike you about her announcement? She also talked about moms, by the way, for what it's worth. She didn't talk about her own momdom, but she did say when people wake up in the middle of the night, whether it be a mom in Compton or a mom in Kentucky, she's waking up having the same concerns. So, you know. I think that's just like... Who doesn't like moms, you know, for the most part? Like, that's a pretty, like, everyone's got some kind of ideal of a mom that's positive, even if they don't like their own mother. Just the, like, the neutral notion of a mom is Americans like it. To me, the interesting thing about Kamala Harris is, like, I see her most authentic self when she is questioning someone mm. like she is yes. so fun to watch in the senate yes it's just like a dog with a bone she's like yes and and i think that's amazing and even though i like sort of disagree with her positions on criminal justice in the like sort of aggression of the moment i'm like yeah like this is what i want you know and i i wonder if there's a way for her to lean into that on the campaign trail and like get that like i mean you'll probably see that in the debates right she'll probably be really sharp in the debates and will people like i respond to it well but like will other people see her as just like a total harpy i don't know yeah she doesn't really seem harpy she's got a fine line to walk though like i feel like a lot of hope about her just because she Mm -hmm. you know she can't really duck her record june it's it's like not so much self-presentation it's like she's got a real good track record of yeah. being a yeah. real hard-ass prosecutor yeah. and so it'd be hard for her to duck that but if she yeah. can just walk that fine line of all the things like and not you know not run into any of the dangerous women stereotype things then she seems like a really viable candidate to me 
you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, less so Kirsten Gillibrand, just because she's just like, she's so typifiable as one kind of thing. You know, there, there, she, I just, well, that's actually, I take back all my prognostication, except to say, like, I can see more negatives there. How about like more people respond badly to her? Yeah. Anyway, that's um, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so, so what have we concluded is just lots of women running, and that's excellent. Yeah. You know, lots of different ways to be a woman in politics. All right. Well, let's move on to our recommendations. June, why don't you go first? So I am torn this week. I inhaled the Netflix series You, which has so many issues and so many problems and all of that. But I got to admit, I kept hitting next and that's got to mean something, right? Um, and I thought it was pretty Wait, well June, written. can I ask you about that? I found it yes. so unpleasant that like ah. I, when you when you sent that out, you were like, I just kept hitting next. I was expecting like a joyous ride. And I was like, get me out of here. So <laughs> like I could force myself to keep watching. Yeah, this, yeah. No, no, so no. Yeah. Unpleasant. No, see, I my response was kind of the opposite of like I could see the unpleasantness. I could see, you know, this is a story of a psychopath. This is a story that where the, you know, the words are appealing and the reality is different. I could see all of that, but I actually wanted to see more. Like all of the, I've been trained from childhood to, you know, I love soap operas. I used to, I don't really watch them much anymore. But, you know, that feeling, I enjoy that feeling of something, there's a new twist coming, something something even weirder is going to happen next. Oh my God, what will it be? Like I, I was driven forward by the potential for surprise, even though certain realities were very clear to me. And I actually found the writing quite appealing. Like again, it's the voice of a psychopath, but that sort of voice over that internal monologue was actually quite appealing to me. Um, There's a anyway. lot of toxic masculinity of all kinds, by the way, in that show. Of all yeah. kinds, all and it's, kinds. And, and yeah. it's also quite conflicted because this guy, who is clearly a psychopath and you know an evil, bad person, is genuinely seeing things. Like, he's seeing men treat a woman on whom he has fixated badly. He recognizes bad male behavior. He, he recognizes toxic masculinity, and he alerts her to it. And in certain ways, he is good for her. He also is, however, a controlling psychopath. Um, but uh, anyway, so I found you both very troubling, uh, but also very watchable. But I mostly want to recommend a book that is very interesting. I'm not sure that it's for everyone, but it's a book by Fintan O'Toole called Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. <laughs> and it's a it's a just a kind of a, you know, a, a nonfiction book about this kind of psychological motivations for Brexit. And Fintan O'Toole, who, as his name suggests, is an Irish writer, really gets He's such to, a good writer. He's a very yeah, good fantastic, writer. brilliant writer, much seen in the London Review of Books. Really gets to the kind of the psychological explanations for you know the fifty two percent at least of, of Britain's desire for Brexit, and it's largely about self pity and the kind of the curious self the curious vision that many Britons have of themselves and of privileged people seeing themselves as victims. And even though it's about Britain rather than about men, it really, many of the kind of the observations that he makes could also apply to, you know, toxic masculinity and some of the things that we were talking about earlier. So uh, I do recommend it if you have the slightest interest in Brexit or Britain. I aspirationally subscribed to the London Review of Books earlier this year, and 
every cover is a Brexit. It's just like the Brexit review. It's true. I mean, I get it. Like, everything in Britain is about Brexit now. It's endless. It's insane. I like stopped reading it because I can't read any more about Brexit. I'm so American right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so... I was in my head choosing between two, but since we'll make this the nonfiction day, at least for me in June. Okay, the thing I've been thinking about absolutely the most this last week or these last couple of weeks, there was an article in The New Yorker called The Art of Decision Making by Joshua Rothman, which just totally blew my mind. This sort of main book in it, which I just ordered, so I haven't read yet, is called Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming by Agnes Callard, who's a philosopher at the University of Chicago. And it's this completely transformative way of thinking about decision making because I feel like I'm really bad at making decisions I can just like like some people don't like the gray area and I can just live there forever until <laughs> I die and so I'm actually trying to get better at making decisions and it's this whole idea that like we make decisions all wrong because you think like for example the classic example is like a single person trying to decide whether to have kids and being like but I'm going to lose my life and I'm not going to be able to do all those things and I'm not going to be able to have any fun but you're not deciding for your current self you're deciding mm -hmm. for a future self and it's not that you make the decision. It's that the decision makes you. So like once you make a decision, you kind of step into the person who has made that decision. It was unbelievably helpful to me because I always get stuck in like the person I am and then the change that that's going to enact on me if I make that decision. But it's like I'm thinking of it all backwards. It totally rocked my world. So anyway, you can start by just reading the New Yorker story called The Art of Decision Making, which is in the January 21st issue. Noreen. I decided to skip that article, actually. <laughs> now I'm going to go back and read it. Yeah, um, I just, it really changed my whole life. I really, it was very, very important for me. Wow. Okay. Um, the book I'm recommending is not a, a secret. <laughs> um, I read Educated by Tara Westover, finally. Um, because <gasps> I love that book. Amazing. I, I, I love it. She's such amazing. a good writer. She's an yeah. amazing writer. It's an it's an insane story. It's like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I had this different concept of the book than what it actually is. I don't know if it's because it's the cover. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the book clubness of it. Full disclosure, I read it because my book club is reading <laughs> it. But it's just like, it's this totally wild story that she she tells in an amazing way. It's like Little House on the Prairie, but with insane fundamentalists. It's the most American story I've ever read. It's totally it's just gripping and it's so violent. I had this idea that it was just like a memoir of schooling and it it's not like it, it's it's an adventure story really and a conversion story and of deep family psychodrama. It's about trauma and violence and intergenerational trauma and violence and yeah, if you haven't read it, I know like gazillions of Americans have, but like read it right now. It's so good. Can I also say another thing that it's about that really helped me? It's about like what is – now I understand why it's called educated. It's like she kind of re-reports the narrative of her young life and she asks her siblings because there's a lot of like footnotes like my brother remembers it this way mm -hmm. or like this person remembers it that way. And it's like I understand finally what education is for because, you know, I think of my own life as like the way I got out is like I went – 
to school, you know, like I went to a certain high school and that kind of got me out. And what is education for? It's like you brought up with a narrative and like her dad tells her one very particular narrative about the world and how the world works. And when you're a kid, you totally believe that narrative. And then you go to school and then you realize there's like 10 narratives and then 20 and then 50. And it's like, oh, that's how education gets you out of situations. It just like, it just teaches you that there are many alternate narratives of how the world works and what happened to you and everything like that. So she becomes like a person who interrogates the singular narrative that her apocalyptic nutso father has fed her. And anyway, I think it's such a good book. Well, right. And not just the way she learns to learn, but also just the straight up facts that she learns. Like she didn't have access. Like there's, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but but she goes to college and accidentally makes a Holocaust joke because she doesn't know what the Holocaust is, Uh, like, which is just insane. So you have to have the facts before you can sort of learn to learn. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, It's, it's an extraordinary book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, that is our show for today. Thank you so much to Jessamine Molly, who's producing our show this week to our production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com or tweet at us individually at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen. You know that we love to hear from you. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back with you next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.